Welcome to the Willow Valley Podcasting Channel, where exciting podcasts are created by Willow Valley residents, for Willow Valley residents, and about Willow Valley residents. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Willow Valley Podcast, Under the Willow Tree. We're coming to you from the beautiful Willow Valley Cultural Center in southwestern Lancaster. My name is Don Heelan, and I'm here with Dale, who is manning the board today. Today we have special guests. A few weeks ago, a group of residents from the Willow Valley Writers Group talked to you about one of the techniques we use to tell our story, and that's flash fiction. Our members read you a number of those stories, and we received very favorable responses from our listeners. We have another technique members of our writers group are using to tell their story. So today, we'd like to talk to you about writing a memoir. After I arrived at Willow Valley, I heard incredible stories of my friends. A resident who escaped from East Germany in a kayak. A resident who marched with Martin Luther King. But now I emphasize, your story doesn't have to be spectacular to be fun for your reader. That made me think about writing a memoir. So, what is a memoir? A lot of people aren't quite sure. I call it a journey through the writer's past. It's not an autobiography, which is your entire life, but a slice of life. What you want to do is place a picture frame around a place on the long road of your life. It's a story, so it needs a beginning, a middle, and an end. But where on your life story? Where do you start? First of all, I would suggest you use research to gather information. Then you need to find the narrative event that launched the main action. We call this the tipping point. That's the moment or the time that launched that main action. For me, I've written three memoirs, one about the pandemic. And of course, the tipping point there was the lockdown. We all worked our way through. The second one was about my dog, and the tipping point was the death of a very beloved dog. And the third was a medical illness. So I suggest you do a self-diagnosis. This is important. It doesn't have to be a lot of work. What do you hope? Who do you hope will read your memoir? Family? Friends? Today we've invited three members of the writers group to read their memoirs and also share their tipping points that they use to get it started. And this may give you some idea. Note, these memoirs don't have to be long. They just have to be interesting. First, I want to introduce my good friend, Gene Mitchell. Gene, welcome. Could you share your memoir? And then would you add at the end the tipping point that got you thinking about it? Sure. By the way, that was a great description of memoir. My story is called The Thrill of Flying by Gene Mitchell. He was destined to fly. His father had earned a private pilot's license as a young man, and his grandfather was part of the team that restored one of the original Wright Brothers airplanes for the Franklin Institute. As a toddler, he frequently flew on his mother's lap in a single-engine plane, his mother once told me that when most little boys pointed to the sky and simply said, plane, his announcements were a little more precise. Jet, turboprop, or biplane. 
At about the age of eight, he helped his father restore a salvaged all-metal two-place airplane, a Luscombe Silver, in the large garage next to their house. It was a thrilling day when they towed that plane, minus the tail and wings, to the local airport where it was assembled, fitted with an engine, and tested to be airworthy. In those bygone years, completing the pre-flight checklist was a serious back-and-forth ritual. Once the exterior of the plane was thoroughly examined, he watched his dad climb into the pilot's seat. A fellow aviator standing outside in front of the plane called out, Gas on! Switch off! Throttle closed! Brakes set! After ensuring that the instruments were correctly set, his dad echoed back that string of instructions to his teammate, who then pulled through the propeller to prime the engine. After priming the engine, his teammate called out, Brakes and contact! His dad checked that the brakes were set, turned the magnetos on, and confirmed back with a loud brakes and contact. His teammate then forced the propeller blade down rapidly, pushing with the palms of his hands and stepping back quickly to avoid injury when the engine came alive. His teammate then removed the chocks and scampered into the plane for takeoff. What an adventurous way to fly. After his brother was born, his father became part owner of a larger four-place airplane so the family could take local trips and occasional cross-country flights together. It was on these flights that he learned how to read aeronautical maps for navigation. It was only natural when he was in college to think about getting his own private pilot's license. He enrolled in a nearby flight school where he honed his knowledge of aircraft navigation, instruments, communication, and weather cautions. Then he hired a flight instructor. And so it was, at the age of 19, he felt the bliss of his first solo flight. Now, I had heard snippets of these stories in our early dating days and was thrilled when Ed invited me to fly with him high above our college campus. Though I felt anxious, I knew how keenly he loved to fly. Now it was my turn to watch Ed perform the pre-flight checklist, albeit in an airplane with a powered starter. I buckled myself in. I was enthralled with the power of the takeoff and enjoyed the expansive views. It was an awesome experience until Ed explained and then demonstrated G-force. Uh-oh, I wasn't prepared for that wild runaway roller coaster-like queasiness. Ed handed me the barf bag. After we landed, I headed for the back seat of Ed's VW Bug to curl up for the drive back to campus. I hoped upon hope that this wouldn't be the deal breaker to our friendship. I'm glad to report it wasn't. And what was your tipping point on that, uh, Jean? Well, you know, at Willow Valley here, dining is a great way to get to know each other. And so one evening, our small group's discussion turned to how we met our husband or wife, and we shared fun stories from our dating days. So that slice of life, that was my tipping point. Yeah. <laughs> now, I guess everybody is going to ask, did you end up marrying him? I did indeed. <laughs> well, very good. And he's a lucky guy. Oh, thanks. Thanks a lot, Gene. You're now welcome. I'd like to introduce a second writer from our writer's group, Dick Narvette. Many of you know Dick. Welcome, Dick. Hi, Don. Thanks for having me here. I'd like to talk about the tipping point a little before I start my story. 
because it has a lot to do with what I'm going to say. I worked for a major corporation for about 38 years, and much of that time was spent in the area of international business development. I've had the opportunity to travel the world. I've accumulated numerous memorable experiences. So the one I'm going to share with our listeners today took place in China in 1998, and it's still as vivid to me today as it was then. I titled this, Christmas in July, a travel memoir. Even in July, it takes the sun till mid-afternoon to cut its way through the dense gray sky that hangs over downtown Beijing. Still, I swelter in suit and tie, in the back seat of the black late-model Audi, the air conditioner offering little relief. My driver slowly navigates his way through the mass of autos, motor scooters, and bicycles. I begin to worry that I'll make my appointment on time. Even the bicycles are passing us now. One goes by on my right, a slaughtered pig draped over its back fender. I surmise it must be going to the Beijing Hard Rock Cafe, which I've found to have a very tasty pork barbecue. On the restaurant's menu, it's simply listed as pig sandwich. To my good fortune, we turn down the tree-lined street, housing the upscale Chinese hotel with five minutes to spare. I tell my driver I'll be at least a few hours, then hurry through the large glass doors into the cool lobby. Waiting for me there is the director, several of his staff members, and a translator. After exchanging pleasantries and business cards, we head up the stairs to a private dining room. The room contains a round table and eight chairs at one end, and what looks to be some sort of TV setup at the other. We are barely seated when the meal service begins. After servings of tea, soups, and vegetables, the main course arrives with great ceremony. Two servers carry in a hand-carved Chinese junk about two feet in length and position it on a lazy Susan in the center of the table. The sailing ship had been hollowed out and filled to overflowing with crushed ice. On top of the ice lies the largest lobster I have ever seen. Its back had been flayed open, the rich meat exposed. Everyone around me commenced to pick at this delicacy with their chopsticks as the vessel slowly turns. As the bow swings toward me, the crustacean's compound eyes meet mine, its large pinchers flailing as if begging me to rescue it from this humiliation. It's only then that I realize we are eating this poor creature alive. I knew that the Chinese prided themselves on the freshness of their food, but this to me is a new benchmark. The meal ends and the table is quickly cleared. My uneasiness over the dinner is alleviated by several rounds of an after-dinner drink called Lao Bai. The clear liquor, served in a small, narrow glass, can best be described as having the kick of moonshine but the smoothness of silk. I discover that the literal translation of Lao Bai is Mr. White. Little did I know that later that year, as a resident of Beijing, Lao Bai would become my Chinese nickname because of my snow-white hair. After some friendly conversation, the TV device is turned on, lights are dimmed, and a pair of microphones is set up in the center of the room. Apparently, karaoke is a popular after-dinner pastime in China. The director's staff members take turns singing Chinese songs with varying degrees of tonality. Everyone is well relaxed by now, and no one seems to mind those who are vocally challenged. After several rounds of singing by the staff, 
All attention turns to the director. It seems their leader is a, a man in his early 50s like me is quite the singer, and not only in Chinese, but in English. I'm told they have only one karaoke song in English, and the director requests that he and I sing it together. Believing myself to be a fairly good vocalist, and still experiencing the warming sensation of the Lao Bai, I graciously agree. As we step to the microphones, I ponder what English song awaits us. It's not likely to be a current 90s tune, but could very well be from the Beatles era, or even possibly an early Bruce Springsteen. The TV screen lights up with the sense of a snowy winter landscape under a clear starry sky. A very familiar tune issues forth from two speakers as words begin to scroll by. Silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright. Our voices blend and the rest of the room becomes quiet. Holy infant, so tender and mild. It feels so good I begin to harmonize. The director looks at me, smiles, and sings with even more gusto. Glories stream from heaven afar. The irony of it all suddenly hits me. I'm thousands of miles from home in the heat of July, together with this fine man who is not even Christian. Christ, the Savior, is born. I don't know if this day will help advance my mission of starting a joint venture here in China, but I do know that I will never hear Silent Night in quite the same way again. I, I bet that was quite an event, and I bet it comes home to you every Christmas, doesn't it? No doubt about it. Good. Well, thanks very much, Dick. Okay, great. Now I want to introduce my third friend from the writer's group, and that's Jim Comey. He is going to read his memoir and talk a little bit about a tipping point. Hi, Jim. Hi, Don. Thank you. Uh, mine is called The Mosquito by James Yukomi, and I think the tipping point will be obvious actually right within the memoir itself. I think it was a dime. It could also have been a snide remark or maybe an inadvertent nudge. The initial trigger wasn't important. The carnage that ensued was. My older brother John and I shared a bedroom, twin beds, a large bureau, a night table, and my small desk didn't leave a lot of room for personal stuff, let alone privacy. John was going to be a senior and had earned serious attention from college coaches and attractive young women as a diver. Fat was not permitted on a sculpted figure, and other than breaking his nose a couple of times from striking the end of the diving board and hitting the bottom of the pool from too clean an entry, he was in fine fettle. He was on our high school baseball team, and he had his driver's license. He was not about that particular summer day to tolerate nonsense from his twerp brother when I spotted a dime on the floor between our beds. That's mine, he said with the cocksure assurance of a guy who had marched down Broad Street playing the trumpet in the band in the Philly Thanksgiving Day Parade. I think not, I said, tired of his ability to speak some German and get good grades from hardly studying. One of us reached for it. Craziness began. He outweighed me by 50-plus pounds and could bench-press me all afternoon. He had reach and speed. I had years of playing tackle football with him and my younger brother in the backyard, where I was used to getting clobbered and holding on until somebody toppled. We tumbled our way from the floor to his bed. The dime switched hands. Sweat flew, 
softening elbow strikes. The slats in his bed let go after a bit, and we found ourselves wedged between the two beds. I felt something brush my head. I thought it might be a mosquito. Bugs were always slipping into the bedroom to drive me crazy with their buzzing at three in the morning. John body slammed me onto my bed, which also collapsed. Pieces of plasterboard rayed down on us from somewhere. The mosquito kept brushing my head. Fatigue and luck smiled on me. I managed to slip a leg lock around his head and squeezed his neck. I couldn't see his face, but the fight was rapidly going out of him. The mosquito became insistent, banging now against my shoulders. It began to hurt. I looked up and saw my four-foot-eleven-inch mother hitting me with a broom. Let him go, she shouted. You're hitting me with a broom, I said, astounded. I've been hitting both of you for five minutes, she said. Let him go. John didn't act like he was going to body slam anymore, so I released my legs. She pointed the broom around the room. Look at what you've done. We both eased ourselves up and looked. There were two holes in the wall. One was over my desk, which was a tad strange since I didn't remember being near there. The other was on the wall next to us. John had plasterboard fragments in his hair. Books and the lamp on the nightstand were toppled. You've made me hurt my wrist, my mother said, easing down the broom on the floor. Guilt, the chief weapon in my mother's vast arsenal, right up there with close to the poorhouse and nobody appreciates anything I've done. You've hurt my head, I said, lobbing her guilt right back at her, but she came right back with her stinger. I'm going to tell your father. Given the circumstances, that was an unnecessary threat. I wasn't too worried. Once my father got over being angry with us after he came home from work, he would take John to the hardware store. There they would talk with enthusiasm about tools and spackling paste and home repairs. With the same attention to detail, he used to sculpt balsa wood into airplanes with tissue paper skin. He would heal the walls, then just for chuckles, teach himself to play the guitar. <laughs> That's wonderful. I, I do have to ask you, Every time you get bitten by a mosquito, does that memory come back to you? Uh, I've, I've gotten past that, Don, but thanks. And I, I should mention that this brother that I speak about is actually a, also a, a resident here at Willow Valley. And occasionally we do bring up the question about the dime. And I keep telling him that actually the dime was mine. <laughs> and I suspect he still doesn't believe you. He, he does not. Good. Well, hey, that's great, everybody. I thank you for all that you've done. And I hope that all of our listeners enjoy our stories. More importantly, I hope maybe this has encouraged you to try to write a memoir. It doesn't have to be long. Each one of these was no more than four or five minutes. Now, only a couple of pages. And I want to add that if any of you have any questions... Please contact any of us, and we would be glad to talk to you. Okay, thank you for listening, and I think I'll ask uh, Dale to take us out. Thanks for listening, and be sure to listen again next week and every week when we'll have another exciting guest.